Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In Signs of the Messiah, Andreas J. Kostenberger, veteran New Testament scholar and expert on the Gospel of John, guides readers through John and highlights its plot and message. John's Gospel is written to inspire faith in Jesus. By keeping the Gospel's big picture in view, readers will see Jesus' mighty signs and be compelled to trust more fully in the Messiah. Readers will have a deeper grasp of John's message and intent through this short and accessible introduction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andreas Kostenberger about his new book, Signs of the Messiah, an Introduction to John's Gospel. Dr. Kostenberger is Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology and Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has written numerous books, including The Theology of John's Gospel and Letters, Encountering John and the Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown, an Introduction to the New Testament. Dr. Kostenberger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you today, Jonathan. Yeah, I wonder if you could begin uh, maybe just by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. You're glad to. Well, um, I grew up Roman Catholic uh, in uh, Vienna, Austria, uh, speaking uh, German, and uh, only became a Christian in my early 20s. Uh, almost immediately after my conversion, I became interested in, in uh, receiving theological training. Uh, I never read the Bible prior to age uh, 23, and I realized I had a lot to learn, a lot to catch up on. So uh, at age uh, 27, I went to Columbia Biblical Seminary, uh, which today is Columbia International University, uh, where I got my Master of Divinity. Uh, that's where I learned my Greek and Hebrew and developed some strong convictions about the importance of hermeneutics, uh, studying scripture if possible in the biblical languages and following proper rules of biblical interpretation, uh, and uh, decided to pursue a career in teaching and writing. Um, I, I got my PhD at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is now Trinity International University, uh, where I studied under the renowned scholar D.A. Carson and uh, wrote my dissertation there in the 90s on the mission theme in John's gospel, uh, especially John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Since then, for the last uh, 25 years or so, I've been teaching New Testament, uh, biblical theology, hermeneutics, Greek, uh, and uh, Johannine literature at various schools, most recently, as you mentioned, at uh, Midwestern Seminary, where I'm also the director of the Center for Biblical Studies. Yes. Yeah, so you spent most of your career uh, in the Gospel of John among doing some other things, but, but what exactly led you to write this book? Why a short intro to John's Gospel? Yes, well, um, every book has a story, and, and, and this book is no different. The, the immediate occasion were several uh, chapel uh, messages and, and lectures I gave at uh, Midwestern Seminary for a pastor's workshop. 
And uh, when the last set of lectures were likely uh, going to be canceled because of the pandemic, I decided to write those up for publication uh, and to publish all nine messages in revised form and in Signs of the Messiah. Uh, my purpose in preparing these lectures was to equip pastors who are preaching through John's gospel with a basic uh, background of the historical uh, setting, the literary structure, and the theological message of the book. I also wanted to provide a simple, accessible introduction to John's gospel for believers and even unbelievers who are interested in assessing the claims of Christ for themselves. As you mentioned, I've, I've worked on John's gospel for over 30 years now, and this book distills my work in a popular, readable format, hopefully without sacrificing scholarly accuracy uh, or academic responsibility. Yes. So... Let's dive into the contents then. You begin by establishing authorship. So in your view, as we come to this intro to John's gospel, how does the question of authorship help us understand the gospel of John? Yes, that's a great place to start. And of course, that's where I start in the book. Uh, I think you'd probably agree that it's a matter of common sense that generally uh, knowing the author of a given piece of writing uh, or even a musical composition can be very helpful, uh, if not essential, for interpreting it correctly. Uh, and uh, John's gospel, I believe, is no exception. Uh, the church has believed for uh, almost two millennia that the author was uh, John, the son of Zebedee, uh, a member of the 12, the 12 apostles, uh, who was also one of the three. Uh, in Jesus' inner circle, along with his brother James and the Apostle Peter. Uh, but then in the late 1700s and early 1800s, some scholars expressed doubts regarding the apostolic authorship of John's gospel, uh, not because of uh, lack of evidence, but uh, I believe due to personal bias, in some cases, uh, you know, what you might call a, a general anti- uh, establishment sentiment, uh, anything that was traditionally held by the church uh, to be true was considered suspect and in need of critical review. Uh, and as a result of this, uh, uh, you know, enlightenment spirit today, very few scholars hold to apostolic authorship. Uh, now in the book, uh, I spend the, the better part of chapter one, about 20 pages defending the apostolic authorship of John's gospel, because I believe it matters a great deal, whether the gospel was written by the person uh, closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, who was an eyewitness to all the major events in Jesus' life, or by a group of uh, John's students after his death, uh, the so-called uh, Johannine community, uh, as many scholars uh, believe. I take a close look at the internal evidence, the data from the gospel itself, and show that the author of John's gospel, the disciple uh, Jesus loved as he's called in the gospel itself, is consistently paired in ministry with Peter, um, just like he is in the book of Acts, uh, chapters 3 and 4, chapter 8, and also, interestingly, in Galatians uh, 2, 9, uh, where Paul calls him along with uh, his brother, uh, along with uh, James, uh, and, uh, and Peter, uh, one of the pillars in the early church. And uh, I believe I show conclusively that uh, both the internal and the external evidence agree that the author 
uh, is the Apostle John. And uh, I think the important upshot of that is that uh, when, when the question arises as to what John's theology is, which is, of course, what the rest of the book deals with, especially his theology of signs, it's important to know what John we're talking about, uh, that of a group of virtual unknowns or the apostle who was uh, closest to Jesus during his ministry and who can give us firsthand information about important events in Jesus' life, such as the Last Supper, uh, Jesus' arrest, uh, his uh, Jewish and Roman trials, the crucifixion, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances. Um, in this way, the question of authorship is vital in assessing the accuracy and credibility of John's gospel and what it tells us about the person and work of Jesus. Yes, and I think that's such a helpful section. I commend that to our readers. So now, as you then get into the content of John's gospel, you, um, you use the term sign, and I think it'd be a great place to start to first, let's, mm -hmm. let's just kind of define our terms about what we mean by sign, and then you cover the Cana cycle into two parts in John mm -hmm. 2 and then John 3 through 4. So maybe just help us understand what's important to know about this section in John as it relates then to Jesus's signs. Yes, uh, and the reason, of course, why I focus on the signs is because uh, that's what John focuses on himself. So uh, let me uh, first tell you a little bit about the importance of signs in John's gospel in general. Uh, you can see that already in John's purpose statement uh, at the end of of the gospel, which says, uh, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's uh, John 20, uh, 30 to 31. And also at the end of uh, what scholars commonly call the book of signs, which is uh, chapters two to 12, uh, John writes, Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Uh, that's uh, John 12, 37. So you can see that Jesus' messianic signs formed the backbone of John's gospel, especially in the first half of the gospel. Now, briefly, uh, as you mentioned, what is a sign? Uh, essentially, a sign is a public act of Jesus that points beyond itself to who Jesus is. For example, uh, his feeding of a multitude shows that Jesus himself is the life-giving bread. He's the bread of life. Uh, in the three earlier uh, so-called synoptic gospels, the only sign Jesus is prepared to give is the sign of Jonah, which uh, prefigures uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection uh, after three days. But then John comes along, uh, writing a generation after the synoptics, and transforms uh, the synoptic notion of a miracle into that of a messianic sign. Uh, and there are different Greek words involved as well. Uh, miracle is dunamis and sign is semeon. Now, according to John, what matters most is not the miracle itself. Uh, that is uh, Jesus' striking authoritative display of power, but rather uh, its messianic significance, the way in which the public act of Jesus reveals his identity as the Messiah and Son of God. You know, when you think about it, people could be the recipients and beneficiaries of one of Jesus' miracles and yet 
failed to grasp their true significance, namely that it showed Jesus to be the Messiah. In that case, the purpose of a sign uh, was not accomplished, and people persisted in unbelief. Uh, to make this point repeatedly, John selects seven public acts of Jesus in the first half of his gospel and designates them as semeon, as signs. The first uh, literary unit in the first half of John's gospel, uh, as you alluded to, is the so-called Cana cycle, uh, which shows Jesus engaged in a cycle of ministry, beginning and ending in the little village of Cana in northern Galilee. There he turns water into wine at a wedding, um, chapter 2, and later heals a royal official son at the end of chapter 4. And in between, he cleanses the Jerusalem temple, which I believe uh, may well have been one of his Jerusalem signs. Uh, there's mention of those signs in 2.23 and 3.2. Um, Nicodemus refers to those. Now, uh, just as a brief uh, addendum here, people sometimes wonder if the temple cleansing is a Johannine sign. Uh, some think uh, Jesus walking on the water uh, better qualifies uh, because the cleansing of a temple is not miraculous as such, and also because it intervenes between uh, the first and the second sign in Cana. But uh, I would argue that uh, we see in the Old Testament that there are not only uh, the signs and wonders performed by Moses uh, during the Exodus uh, from Egypt, uh, what we might refer to as miracles, but also prophetic signs, such as those performed by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, now, at, at one time, Isaiah walked about, stripped down to his undergarments to, to convey uh, a message of God's future judgment on Israel in form of the Babylonian exile. You can uh, read about that in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3. So you see, a sign can be a symbolic public act that need not necessarily be, be miraculous in nature. And I believe that temple cleansing is just such an act. By clearing the temple... Jesus uh, shows symbolically that the temple will be destroyed and rebuilt. But ultimately, uh, he's not referring to the physical temple, but as John explains, the temple of his body. He will be crucified and after three days uh, rise again. Great. So then from the Cana cycle, you then tackle what is called the festival cycle, which is John 5 through 10 into three parts. So what characterizes this section of John's presentation of Jesus and his signs? Yes. Yeah, so the, the second ma major literary unit in John's gospel and following the Cana cycle is customarily referred to as the festival cycle, because here John shows Jesus attend a series of Jewish uh, feasts, such as uh, an unnamed uh, festival in chapter five, uh, Passover in chapter six, uh, tabernacles in chapter 7 and 8, uh, and then uh, the uh, Feast of Dedication in chapter 10, uh, which is also known as Hanukkah. Uh, and just like the Cana cycle, the festival cycle contains three signs. So there's a nice symmetry uh, to John's presentation of Jesus' signs as well. Uh, and those three signs are the healing of the lame man who had been invalid an invalid for 38 years uh, in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in chapter 6, uh, the only sign included in all four Gospels, 
so even though John typically uh, doesn't repeat information in the earlier three Gospels, uh, here uh, he makes an exception uh, because uh, he uh, adds the extended bread of life discourse where Jesus elaborates on the significance of the miracle uh, he performed, uh, namely that Jesus is the life-giving bread. Uh, and then the third and final sign in the festival cycle is the striking healing of uh, the man born blind uh, in chapter nine. Now, what's interesting here, and what I discuss at some length in the book, uh, is that John contrasts the healed men in chapters five and nine uh, to show the importance of a proper response to Jesus' signs. Uh, while the lame man in chapter 5 shows no sign of repentance. As a matter of fact, he reports Jesus to the authorities and uh, walks off in utter disbelief despite the healing he received. Uh, the man in chapter 9 gradually warms up to Jesus' claims and even becomes his disciple and worships him. Uh, a remarkable transformation. As a result, uh, he pays the price. He's cast out of a synagogue. Uh, and his parents distanced themselves from him out of fear uh, of the Jewish authorities. And so the man, uh, the, the, the man born blind in his uh, spiritual pil pilgrimage epitomizes a proper response to Jesus' signs, while the invalid, who likewise was healed, uh, even on the Sabbath, uh, epitomizes an unbelieving response. So in this way, uh, John uses the various beneficiaries as representative characters that model a proper or improper response to Jesus' messianic signs. Yeah, I mean, that is such a helpful point to see, especially as John highlights the responses that people give to Jesus' signs. So then the final part of this book includes the conclusion to the book of signs, John 11 through 12, as well as the book of exaltation, which is the rest of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 21. In your view, how are Jesus's signs important for understanding these chapters? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Jonathan, uh, as I believe that uh, there are actually no additional signs in John 13 through 21 because the crucifixion and resurrection are actually the reality to which all of Jesus' signs point. Uh, but John 11 and 12 fulfill a sort of bridge function between the book of signs, uh, the, the, the first 10 chapters of John, and the book of exaltation, uh, chapters 13 uh, through 20 or 21. And in this third and final section of the first half of John's gospel, we only find one more sign. Uh, the climactic seventh sign of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, this sign is unique in that it is the only raising from the dead in John's gospel, and I might add one of only three uh, raisings from the dead in any of the gospels. Uh, and it's a sign that prefigures and anticipates Jesus' own resurrection. So it's particularly fitting to be that seventh and final sign in John's gospel. Uh, in this way, John shows that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Uh, and as we've seen, sometimes I am sayings uh, in John are linked with, with the signs. Uh, as we've seen earlier, I'm the bread of life. Uh, John takes great care 
in arranging Jesus' messianic signs. As I mentioned, he features three signs each in the Cana cycle and the festival cycle, and then concludes the book of signs with Jesus' seventh and final sign, which stands on its own. And he's climactic also uh, in the signs that if people don't believe in a Messiah who can raise a man who's been dead for four days, nothing will likely convince them. Uh, not to mention that, uh, you know, in John's writing, seven is typically the perfect number of completeness. Now, taken together then, uh, cumulatively, these seven signs furnish abundant and compelling evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, just as prophets such as Isaiah predicted, the Messiah would heal the lame, open the eyes of the blind, and even raise the dead. And John shows that Jesus did all of that. So this proves conclusively and compellingly that he is the Messiah. Uh, just like the author of Hebrews says, how can anyone neglect such a great salvation? So uh, John asks uh, somewhat similarly, how can anyone disregard such compelling evidence that Jesus is the Messiah? And the way he makes uh, this point is by parading in front of the reader's eyes a series of messianic signs of Jesus. So on the whole, we see that Jesus' seven messianic signs uh, are all found in John 2 uh, through 12, the first half of John's gospel. The reason for that, uh, I think, is that these signs were given primarily to the Jewish people to prove to them that Jesus was the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, but once they've resolved to reject uh, Jesus' messianic signs, at the end of chapter 12, uh, Jesus goes on to focus on preparing his new messianic community, uh, a believing remnant uh, for their mission to the world. Uh, what's fascinating is that the passion narrative starts already in chapter 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet uh, as a demonstration of his perfect love for them. He also instructs them about the coming Holy Spirit and prepares them for a time when he will no longer be physically with them. You know, it's interesting that John focuses not so much on Jesus' actual suffering as on the glory that is on display when he gives his life for us on the cross. So uh, altogether, we see how the seven signs of Jesus all contribute to open up salvation for all, just as John writes in his well-known verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him uh, should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kossenberger, for your time. I, I just have to commend this work for all of our listeners. It is such a, a helpful and um, compelling introduction to John's gospel. I think everybody should have it. So go grab yourself a copy. Before we go, Dr. Kossenberger, would you mind uh, just sharing with us maybe some uh, future research projects that you have? Yes, I'll be uh, glad to. I'm on sabbatical this year and uh, am currently working on a biblical theology for Crossway with an Old Testament collaborator, uh, Gregory Goswell, a prolific uh, Old Testament scholar who teaches at Christ College in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and after this, I'm, um, Lord willing, planning to write uh, a major commentary on John's gospel uh, for Lexham's 
evangelical exegetical commentary series, uh, for which I also serve as the New Testament editor. Wow. Well, that is exciting. Thank you so much for your work. And uh, for those listening, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read.